Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Fortunately, I am joined by two real academics from actual institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Rudy Van Gelder Institute for Acoustic Science here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about ancient psychoacoustics, that is, sound environments in antiquity. New research at the Sanctuary of Zeus on Mount Lycan in Greece shows that building an ancient temple wasn't simply a matter of making sure you could hear things from the cheap seats, but constructing an entire complex where sound was one of many considerations in a larger sensory experience. Now, we knew that classical architects could build structures where you could hear a whisper from the back row. And today, you can go into a men's room at Yankee Stadium and hear the game uninterrupted. So sound travels with you through certain experiences. And adding sound into broader archaeological analyses isn't so easy, especially if you're looking at less-than-monumental sites where there's likely to have been a lot of yelling and animal noises rather than performances of Greek plays. So maybe the question isn't what the past sounded like, but rather what all that sensory input meant to people in the past. Would the meaning of sounds have differed if you were an upper-class person or a wandering goat herd? How did sensory experiences turn into social ones? Well, one thing is for sure. You can't beat an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer concert as a phenomenological experience. Okay. All right. All right. Well, now that, <clears throat> now that we have our sound problems resolved, <laughs> more or less, uh, should we do a lightning round? One yeah. Okay. Do you have one ready? Do I ever not? <laughs> I, live, I live for the lightning round. I live for lightning as uh, as our listener can attest um okay so here's here's my question what's the loudest thing you've ever heard hmm. wow um hmm. I, I i could specify specifically loudest <laughs> performance <clears throat> um but you know loudest experience yeah. loudest phenomenologically experienced phenomenon um, you, know, you, you know when you think about it sound is so subjective yeah right for later right so i mean i could if you said performance i could say oh you know a who concert at madison square garden that seemed hugely loud but on the other hand you know being stuck in a tiny little club on you know on Boylston in, in Boston that was so loud that, you know, my kishkas were coming out, <laughs> you know, that it's a, but it wasn't, it was a different kind of loud. And you were just listening to Jonathan Richmond and the modern lovers. Not I even only like... wish, come on. We're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be really old or anything like that. Yeah. 
Um, hmm. sexual, what were they called? Sexual Maneuvers in the Dark. That was another band of that era. Oh, my. <laughs> Human Sexual Response? Human Sexual Response. Right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> were, I don't, yeah, they were loud. I don't know. There were some. But I'm trying to think of non-performance related sounds. I'll throw in mine because it's non-performance related. I can't think of any performance related ones. Um, Every single wedding and bar mitzvah I've ever attended. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I may have to revise my answer. <laughs> um, right. Jot that down. <laughs> Uh yeah well I'll I'll offer three then oh. yeah, disparate examples. One following Rachel is um one particular nephew's wedding, um which was really loud. I mean like brain addlingly loud. <laughs> the other was um was the uh the. <laughs> The, the infamous um, Emerson Lake and Palmer performance at Barton Hall in 1978, um, where I only remember the first half. And I woke <laughs> because up. Because you went deaf. <laughs> yeah. When they came out of the floor, that was the end of it for me. But also on uh, a completely different phenomenon, I, I once heard um, a, a, tr a plane taking off, a C-5 transport plane. Uh-huh. And I was inside the terminal and the plane was like way the hell down to the other end of the runway. And it was the most thunderously loud right. kind of chest shaking mm -hmm. sound that I had, I've ever, I've ever heard. Right. Uh, I would, I was thinking of, um, you know, yeah. Um, planes and takeoff and, you know, s screeching through the skies, but I didn't think, I don't think I've heard anything that loud. <laughs> Did you hear, did you see the who at Madison Square Garden? Yeah. And Boston Garden. Wow. Hmm. Was that the Boston Garden show where, where um, Moon passed out? No, yeah. that was, that would have been before. Yeah. No. <laughs> and okay. I saw them uh, at, at Sun Devil Stadium in Phoenix. That was very loud. But also <laughs> well, loudness is a function of age, right? So the older you get. Like when you were younger, Rachel, did weddings and bar mitzvahs seem so loud? They did, but I had a better tolerance for them when I was younger. Like right. I didn't have to put in earplugs when I was younger. Um, right. Uh, but I never, you know, it was always way too loud for me. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> right. And look what it did to, uh, to Pete Townsend. Wow. Permanent hearing loss, permanent tinnitus. Or <laughs> Beethoven. Or Beethoven, mm, mm. but you know, they they persevered, right? <laughs> well, should we segue into what we're talking about? Yeah, well, you know, I set it up for for somebody, <laughs> right? For, for someone to seg. Well, there's been some recent research on ancient soundscapes. Uh, what's it called? Psychoacoustics. Psychoacoustics. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's worth it just for that word. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's something that, that David Byrne would come up with. I'm surprised he hasn't. <laughs> uh, well, we'd like to make his lawyers aware of this uh, <laughs> now for, for a finder's fee. Psycho, psycho acoustic. Acoustic. <laughs> 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 
So, Did you ever see the 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 um, Talking Heads? No. Yeah. No. Okay. Sorry. Just a, no. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the work was done in Greece um, at the Sanctuary of Zeus on Mount Lycaon. Yeah. Lycaon. Yeah. Uh, and um, it it was um, a team from from Amsterdam. Uh, and they um, recorded various noises in various places of this archaeological site. And, um, or rather, they played various noises and they recorded um, in different parts of the site where, um, what the what the noises sounded like. Can you hear me now? <laughs> right. How about right. now? <laughs> Let's not turn this into a Verizon commercial. <laughs> yeah yeah so um yeah um and that's that's the setup right so it's the temple of zeus is that correct or yeah, uh, and yeah. It's, got a, it's a big huge cultic site with or a big huge site with all sorts of different things right all sorts of different buildings a hippodrome right. a stadium there's processionals there's a temenos and an altar on a on a hilltop on a mountaintop Above the site, there's fountains, there's semicircular buildings, all sorts of public architecture. And that public architecture has its own certain internal logic to it that we understand from a sort of non-acoustic <clears throat> uh, way, a tr the traditional way of understanding it. Mm -hmm. And now they're, they're sort of mapping the acoustic landscape of this place. And I thought this was nothing short of exciting and brilliant and genius. And I think now all sites need to have this component. Um, though I was thinking about the, the mundane bronze and iron age sites in the Southern Levant. And I'm pretty sure that their you know, uh, psychoacoustic uh, landscape is as mundane and prosaic as everything else about them. Right. They're neither psychic nor acoustic. <laughs> well, I was trying to think of a couple that might be, and we can get into that. <laughs> but um, I thought it was really dynamite, exciting work because they came up with things like on a hillside, uh, sort of adjacent to the hippodrome or above the hippodrome, people could hear the hippodrome activities very clearly. And the uh, athletes in the hippodrome could hear the mumblings, grumblings, excitements of the people sitting on the, or standing on the hillside, clearly. And that made the whole interaction and spectacular nature of the event uh, even more dynamic and more exciting. And then I started thinking about, you know, attending our own kinds of events and how sound plays a role in that and how sound is now being piped into athletic events because God forbid, you know, you should be able to A, hear yourself or B, not think you're being titillated to the point of ecstasy for every single, you know, ridiculous um, event, uh, you know, sports event that you attend. Hmm. But that's, a, that's a different thing. Yeah. Well, we've, we've known for Pete, we, 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 I didn't know anything. Um, <laughs> people have known for a long time that <clears throat> architects in the classical world were very attuned to sound within the structures. Right. So you could sit on the, in the way back row, you know, the 13,000th row of some uh, theater or mm -hmm. amphitheater, and you could hear somebody on the stage whisper. Right. Um, 
and they're you know perfectly these these particular sites or or components or installations what do you want to call them buildings that might be a good word um, <laughs> were were situated and constructed and tuned so that you could hear but now extending this over an entire com, you know series of of elements to a site level that's you know hundreds of meters kilometers in in each direction is is really fascinating and and you know the whole idea of what what did what did it sound like in the past is is very cool mm, mm. right and it sort of builds on the whole advancement and emphasis on sensory elements in the past right so we've talked about a couple times smell uh, smell yeah, right. and um you know obviously there's taste we can't really you know that's been also dealt with it hasn't really been dealt with in the same exact way um in part because it's better known like we have mesopotamian cookbooks and recipes or recipes <laughs> not cookbooks um but um yeah it's really you know this and this whole thing about you know if you existed in antiquity what did it sound like what did it smell like you know yeah these are these really add immeasurably to our understanding of the past. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because it didn't grab me as much as I thought it would. Um, to be honest, uh, I've always <laughs> been interested in um, like architecture, monumental architecture, what it's like to be a person standing next to a pyramid or whatever. Um, so, you know, the, the way you interact with your, the environment you've created is a very interesting idea. Um, I don't know. Um, there's, I, I think there's, um, and and in the academic article, um, it, it mentioned this, um, the excavator, the, the researcher, I should say, um, mentioned this, um, that we really don't know what, um, how, how they perceived, they in the past perceived, um, perceived sounds um and you know are we putting our own ideas about sound into into antiquity when we shouldn't be so i was really bothered by by the um there's 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 so much speculation involved and there's but isn't there always i mean if you really deconstruct any given argument there's so much speculation in it um quite frequently especially when we get to and this site in particular in Greece is a cultic site. Yeah. So whenever we start talking about cult and religion and motivation and what they're doing and what they're thinking and all of this, it gets really, really speculative. Well, that's true. That's a fair point. Um, but well, but I, I, isn't there a, a kind of supply side versus demand side <laughs> component to this? Like, okay, Formal economist. You, Carl well, is joining us today. <laughs> um, you know, here, here's what the site or the building is designed to do in terms of its capabilities. You can, you can drop a pin in the hippodrome and they're going to hear you in the temple. And it's the same kind of thing with any sort of design components, let's say in a palace or a temple, you know, you, 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 the, you, the, the constructor is trying, are trying to convey a message or a series of messages or 
uh, create an environment that gets whatever the message is across. Here's a giant staircase comprised of the skulls of, of enemies. Okay, you know, do you get the point? Um, <laughs> what you don't understand fully is how this was received by the viewer, uh, hearer, right. smeller, right, what, right, what have you. Those are the those are the subjectivities that I think are are a, a little bit opaque. Although you could, and I don't think that this article did, you could go in particular through classical literature and look at <clears throat> what classical although it did talk about uh, did quote uh, pausanias at one point right. mainly about the site itself but what authors said about how it sounded and what their feelings were what it meant to them to hear to see to otherwise perceive mm -hmm. well i'm not worried about the subjective level again because i just think that there's so much subjectivity in all of our analyses especially when we get to things like oh, there's a temple here and blah, blah, blah. You know, who knows if they thought it was sacred? Maybe they thought it was a little, you know, dirty little building at the end of a path that nobody ever used anymore. Who, we don't really know, right. you know, especially when we're lacking texts. But what I found interesting from, from my perspective, because I like sports and I go to sporting events and this whole analysis of the sound lines, if you will, the sound interactions between the hillside and the hippodrome, um, at the sanctuary of Zeus is seating is mm -hmm. that by allowing people on the hillside to be able to hear what was going on, the, um, the size of the crowd is much larger or potentially much larger. And right. that means that the event is much more broad scale as opposed to limited, even though hippodromes, I assume from I have no idea, but I think they have, they can have a lot of people and regardless, yeah. it's even more people so that the spectacle was much more broadly and widely received by people who were actually hearing it or getting a little piece of the action. Um, and um, I think that that's an important um, sort of result from this kind of analysis in that everybody could participate in some way. Everyone could get you know, could get in on it. Um, right. You know, the cheap seats for the hillside probably didn't cost anything. It would be like, you know, going to watch a Cubs game in the old days and sitting on someone's roof. Um, so I think that that was an important takeaway in that these events, or more importantly, the spectacle of these events was more broadly and widely received than we might have thought. That's a very, very interesting point. I guess, um, so... So the question, and it was raised in the article, is, um, you know, intentionality. Did yeah. did they did they know that the hillside was a good place to listen, or did that develop afterwards? Somebody's walking by and on the hillside and saying, "Oh, I come can on over. You got to hear this." Right. right. <laughs> did you and know then, that you could hear what they're saying? Sure. Yeah. Right. Don't tell anybody because we're standing here for free. Right. right. Um, well, and then there's also the fact this also kind of bothered me. You know, they have to the researchers had to figure out how to um, how to document this. So they used um, special microphones like stereo microphones of some sort to mimic human ears and all that. But, you know, what you hear with technology, it's not the same as you're just walking on the hillside. Um, and I also kind of felt like have we really exhausted all of 
all of archaeology, we're down to trying to to listen to how the world sounded. Um, I mean, I'd like something more solid. I'd like, you know, let's talk about architecture. Let's talk about mud bricks. Let's talk about well, how it's been talked about for in yeah, this case, probably I, for 200 years. Right. I and think I think it's, it's fine. I think that's that's fine. 200 years. Let's go for another 100 years. I don't think we need to go this to these lengths. Well, <laughs> that's and the, sound and whatever. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I mean, you can decide not to, but um, I mean, firstly, that, like Alex said, that stuff is being covered, but I don't see it exhaustion. I see it as expansion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is part of their world. It is part of our world. Right. And I, I was thinking about the analysis that um, Stephen Fine did on the Ark of Titus. Mm -hmm. He found all that paint, right? right. And, and color in classical archaeology over the last 20 years has become a huge topic. Huge. Right? Now, now yeah. we know everything was, was painted in these really gauche colors and very loud. And right. if you're walking through Ephesus, you're seeing lots and lots of, you know, colors all over the place on everything. Right. And I think that that is really important and good to know that when you're walking down a street in a classical, <clears throat> in a Roman city, that a lot of stuff was being painted. And the Absolutely. same thing goes with Mayan, the Mayan world. So right. if we're in the Mesopotamian world, all the, the all the things were painted, everything was painted. Everything was painted, right? Exactly. Um, so that expands our understanding of the daily, not only the daily experience, but also heightened places like cult uh, mm -hmm. areas, and that's sight and you know smell. We've already talked about all these places, probably not Roman cities. Parts of Roman cities, but yeah. certainly bronze and Iron Age cities in the in the Near East probably all smelled awful, right? right. I mean, to, to you, well, they it probably smelled familiar to them, but yeah, awful to me, sure. Yeah, um, awful and that's spelled, another thing, though. Awful spelled both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's that's another thing that um, it's it's very subjective. Um, you know, um, smell is subjective and uh, sound is subjective. Some people love the loud music. That's why they play music so loud. Um, I love the nightlife. I love yeah. the boogie. Right. right. Well, that was one of my questions is what constitutes noise? What constitutes a good sound versus a bad sound? How oh, much boy. is too much? You're getting close to home here on this one. <laughs> Very and, close to home. Yeah. And and now, I mean, we, we always we should have known that everything sounded like something and we could, you could go to, I don't know, lots of different places, traditional cities and things. Uh, and, and hear what it may have sort of kind of sounded like. Um, but that was never, that was never factored in. It was quiet, something that only rich people could enjoy. So they um, brought up this situation of the fountain. And how the acoustics at the fountain were 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 more quiet. It was a more quiet space, and it was sort of a reserved area that you could maybe go to for either you know bathing or drinking and get away from the sound of the spectacle. And that also reminded me of going to a concert or going to a sporting event and getting tired of all the sound mm -hmm. and needing to find a little area of respite. And uh, that is was less in the sort of path of of the sound waves, and that you know, I uh, you you wouldn't be the only one looking for that respite, right? So you go I thought, out and you're to the you buy a t shirt, you buy a hot dog, 
Um, <laughs> yeah. But you're still uh, connected. And but you're also still having a, a particular kind of social experience. And that was one of the things that that struck me is that they, they were talking about, you know, kind of social connections that were would be formed and through these experiences when you sit in the cheap seats of the hippodrome mm-hmm. or or the good seats right up front. Um and you know when you go to a sporting event or a concert, you create a social connection with the people sitting around you, whether you like it or not. If you're right. at the if you're at the Yankees game and there's a bunch of you know Cubs fans sitting next to you, everybody's yapping and everybody's razzing and everybody is more or less positive until you know the punches are thrown if they're <laughs> if they're thrown and and this kind of thing but it's completely transitory once right, you walk right. out it's done that's one of the problems i think i have with this that um you don't know if they're going to be cubs fans um sitting next to you and i don't know if that they're you know yankees cubs games are not that don't happen that often so i'm not sure i like the analogy <laughs> but i get i get the analogy um and um and and you can't you can never trace back that kind of transitory moment. So what's the point of all of this? Right. If, but when you go to a religious event mm-hmm. on a on a high holy day of some mm-hmm. kind, whatever it is of, of your uh, of your faith community, you're mm-hmm. in a community and you're sitting next to people that you either know or you don't know, or and there's probably more people there um, because it's you know, an, an unusual event um, mm-hmm. rather than the Friday, Saturday or Sunday services or whatever. And you, you fought, you create um, bonds that do last. You may not see these people. You may not want to see these people, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, you, you recognize yourself as part of a, something bigger than yourself True, and, your, but- and your norm. Right. Okay. So that's your, your experience. Um, But unless you, I don't know, keep a journal or write about it in some other form, it's going to be lost. It's not going to outlive you and it's not going to outlive the moment. But everything gets lost. lost. I mean, you know, you walk down a processional way in Rome and you see all of these brilliantly painted monuments and then Mm -hmm. you go back to your village that all of that is lost except for whatever you carry inside of you, which I think is pretty much always the case. And for some people, it will be a cosmic moment that they'll remember that will be indelible to them. And other people will be like, you know, what time is it? I've got I've got to go take the donkeys out for a walk. Right. You know, I think that's way too subjective. I think that's I don't I don't know if that's the point. Other, I think the point is here that there might be a soundscape component to the organization of these sites and that maybe we should start looking further afield for at other sites. So I'll give you an example. Okay. I couldn't find a publication on this, but I know that in chatting with the excavator, um, so uh, Jan Schimmick is a very, very uh, accomplished old world archeologist who turned to, uh, at University of Tennessee, who turned his attention to um, caves in Tennessee. And um, these caves are prehistoric and they have painting on them. And one of the, in one of his presentations, I don't think he actually published on this particular thing, though I haven't gone through everything. He talked about the acoustics in some of these cave galleries and that there's an acoustic element that is 
that p- potentially patterns with the decorative element, the mm. the artistic element. And then and then if you think about caves and the acoustics in caves yeah. and how these galleries in caves have just extraordinary acoustics, you can't help but think that in these, you know, prehistoric caves wherever, North America, in Europe, that yeah. there's a, a soundscape element to it. Right. They were they were they were potentially cooler and they were, you know, obviously no oxygen. They were obviously a canvas for um painting, but they also had a um they also had a a a sound element to them. Yeah, caves for sure. That's sort of, you know, as opposed to an open sanctuary area, the caves with the echoes and the, you know, who knows who knows what they were doing and what they were hearing. Um I just I don't know. Uh well, if you go to any any temple, past or, or present. Right. I mean, temple broadly yeah. construed um, is designed with a, an acoustic element uh, in mind. Oh, absolutely. C- certainly, um, certainly classical buildings are and certainly uh, the in the high European tradition. Right. Cathedral. And cathedrals and and uh, and even smaller, even smaller you know, churches and chapels and things. Right. Um, the question that I have is how much. And let's say that you can extrapolate this intention to broader specialized sites. So here at this particular site, um, Temple of Zeus, there's a temple with some specialized architecture, but there's also other components that are further outside. Um, how much can you, you know, extrapolate this to other kinds of uh, you know, site-wide, as a site-wide phenomenon. Yes, sites had sounds. Right, so- but, right, but okay. So I was thinking very quickly, because we kind of picked this topic and I hadn't, you know, had a lot of time to think it all through, but um, I was thinking of mortuary temples in Egypt, and especially Deir el-Bakri, right? <laughs> it's in a very specific location. And... um Undoubtedly, the acoustics are part of that selection process, I would think. But in general, I would think it would be really interesting to apply this kind of analysis to a wide variety of Egyptian mortuary sites and temples and everything else. Right. You, site- you go to uh, Hachushash. Right. And there's yeah. all sorts of, there's temples out in the middle. Right. There's right. temples, you know, components that are carved into rocks or in natural kind of grottoes. Right, exactly. That's a very good example because it's such a huge site and the topography plays a major role. And you're like, what are they doing way out here? Right. You're visiting some part of the site that literally took an hour to walk to. And, and yes. <laughs> and, and con- <laughs> conversely, you go to let's say monasteries in the desert. Mm. And I think there's somebody who just, and I don't remember her name. So apologies to you who just wrote a book about this monasteries in the desert, like Christian monasteries and things, which are situated um, to take advantage of silence. Mm. And there's no, you know, silence is not silence, silence, silence means all sorts of natural sounds right. that, that kind of blow through so but it's meant to dissipate human-made sounds right including your own heartbeat right that's the that's the foundational 
sort mm -hmm. of that we all have. And in silence, you can hear that much better. Um, I wanted to, okay, so just getting back to Hattusha, because this gets raised in the article, uh, the issue of thunder and mm -hmm. whether thunder was appreciated as um, something um, terrifying or something held in awe. I don't know why it can't be both, but certainly in uh, in 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 landscapes like Hattusha or central Anatolia, where you have these massive storms that just roll through, um, that too must have been part of the whole thing. And that's something we really can't chart. But let me bring up one other thing, only because I'll forget it in a second. And that in order to sort of bring it back to someplace that we're a little bit more familiar with, um, Mount Abal, mm. right? So I was trying to think of places in the Southern Levant where any of this could apply. And um, I, I I could only think of two off the top of my head. One is Mount Abal. Okay. Because it's a cult site and it's on a mountaintop and it's associated across the way with Mount Gerizim. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, well, that might be an example if one did this analysis whereby people on either mountaintop, as the Bible sort of hints at, Mm -hmm. could hear each other quite clearly and that this created thus a unified soundscape and also opened up the number of participants. So I was thinking, oh, that would be interesting to analyze. Right. Yeah. And the other right. one, and I'll let you jump in because is in the desert, all of these calcolithic sites with standing stones that are found in all sorts of kooky places and people have tried to figure out what they're doing there. Um, and if there's any internal logic to the, you know, distribution of these uh, sites, mm -hmm. um, but there might be an audio component, like you know, you can you can yell from one to another, you know, it's like, Hello. you know, <laughs> time time to sacrifice the goat now. <laughs> um, right. Well, I think the I, I think the 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 obvious example is um, the Sermon on the Mount. What? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I have to do that. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> yes. right. And, you know, no, nothing has been, you know, I mean, the, I think the Monty Python gang uh, kind of hit the hit the nose on the head, the nail on the nose. Whatever. How's right. it go? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> there. Now we're, now we're getting into touch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and you, uh, you know, hinges around the world standing stone you know stone hinges made of stone for example if you had a stone hinge yeah <laughs> yeah um which is not simply a site with stones but it's a whole kind of regional component um that uh okay anyway but uh no, but i, I want to know whether you know how tuned um, secular sites and constructions were. If you were a rich guy building a, an elite residence or a king building a palace, are you going to be having your architects tuning the structure? But so didn't that... we, haven't we sort of established at one level that religion is insinuated through all of ancient life? <laughs> well, I guess well, we... it's we an assumption. <laughs> well, that's Alex, that's always your position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, okay, but uh, s secular life, like I'm a dirt farmer, here's my house, or I'm a rich bastard, here's my here's my building. <laughs> you know, it's it's religious because it's my castle, but it's not explicit in that 
you know, the temple, uh, the, the, the house of the gods or something. Right. Okay. Well, okay. So a couple of things, but I can only remember one of them now. Um, first of all, um, in the article, there's a sort of an admission that, you know, you're dealing with runes and, um, if, if you don't have intact walls and if the ceiling's gone, isn't this going to change how sound hits different places? So, you know, doing all this doesn't really tell us that much because we're not dealing with it, it the site, the way it would have looked and sounded a couple of thousand years ago. So that's that's the point I wanted to make that I remember. And since I can't remember the now other, the points I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, no, I did remember it. So Bless Her the Cheesemakers is actually a great example. Um because because um, you know, the 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 site was chosen because, you know, you can orate to a large group, but it wasn't chosen for great acoustics. You know, obviously this is, you know, in, in the Monty Python version, but uh it wasn't chosen for great acoustics. Um and you can't uh, so so the issue of intentionality, I think, is what I'm getting at, um, comes up again. You know, you're choosing a site for various reasons. Is sound really one of them? To a certain extent, yes. If it's a big arena, if it's a place where it's you're like the sermon from the from the hole. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, something so, like that. It's a sermon yeah. where people have the potential to hear you kind of right. place. But but in our again, in our Greek example, uh, you know. Maybe people discovered the hill was a good place to hear after the fact. It's not like they chose the site because the hill was nearby. So well, that could be, but but I mean, you can introduce you can introduce that into any archaeological analysis. Well, that's true. Well, but you can always say we don't have enough information. We don't know. We don't know if it was deliberate or if they found out afterwards. That, but okay, I would make the argument that when there are these kinds of soundscapes that have been identified, like the relationship between the hillside and the hippodrome, let's say, that um, that can be used as evidence to support the deliberate as opposed to organic development of the site. Because when we talk about organic versus deliberate um, organizations of sites, you know, there's, there is a lot we don't know, and there is a lot of speculation. And, you know, what is organic to us, like, let's say, the site of Uruk, mm -hmm. right, which is a big, whomping, huge site with tons and tons of stuff going on. Right. You know, maybe in their minds, it was not organic at all, but it was very deliberate. So I think we can't escape that kind of, I don't know. I don't, I'm not worried about that too much. I'm worried. I'm much more. Uh, I, I'm much more um, optimistic that this is a really interesting way forward. I'm glad it grabbed both of you. I really am. Um, I like more solid things like, you know, walls and. Uh, but and it wouldn't sound like anything without walls. <laughs> Good point. A wall yeah. of sound. Yeah. That's true. It's some yeah. some ancient Phil Spector was yeah, really sitting there contemplating and more reverb. Was <laughs> um, or she, we don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a whole uh, there's a whole Walter Benjamin kind of angle here about reproducibility that we right. could, that we could talk about um, because every sound every experience necessarily sounded different. 
from the next one, even if they're doing the same play because, because of some variation in the wind or the air pressure or, you know. Right. But through our perception of the event, we tend to conflate so that right. every, you know, every experience sort of sounds the sort same. Of sounds alike. Right. Whether every who show it was different, but it's sort of. It's sort of the same. Right. And, you know, even for the, even for the nabobs who go to La Scala, <laughs> who can identify every single difference between every, you know, opera ever performed, I think that except for a rarefied few, everyone else is like, that was great. It was great last year. It was great this year. It was great 10 years ago. Um, right. right. Well, um, do we want to talk about landscape phenomenology? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the the network of network of experiences and meanings that I, are generated by we should hold off on that maybe that yeah. can be a, a topic a synthetic topic we can have synthetic <laughs> topics we can have <laughs> big picture topics that's right what what meaning means to me <laughs> <laughs> well okay so here's here's my final thought okay i think it was stuff was loud but it wasn't like who performance loud no. except maybe in battles or when your when your site was being destroyed or something like that or if you were you know something like that yeah no absolutely okay. um, especially in these kinds of rarefied places that are uh, cult centers right. though i i suspect i don't know man on the on the if you had front row seats at a hippodrome it was probably yeah, be a racket Loud and terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> as these... well, that's probably true. Front row seats, yeah, but yeah. Um, but that's seats? but that's intentional. So you know, yeah. to, to build a large arena and to have um, seats that close, so that's intentional. Right, and you turn to the person sitting next to you, going, "Can you believe how loud this is?" <laughs> right, right. And you would have a here. social bond with them. Is there a fountain around? <laughs> <laughs> but right, but right. this study was not you know, was kind of assuming that and it was trying to find more subtle things. And I guess my objections are, I think these things are so subtle and so subjective that we're not, I don't find, I don't, I don't know if it's, well, you guys, you guys have done a good job of, of trying to convince me that breeze. it's, that it's actually, you know, worthwhile to, to do. So. Did you ever go to the, the laser show at the science museum? I went to, Yes, I've been to not I don't know the science museum uh, in Boston. No, I've been to the ones at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say there's you know the the planetarium shows, but that's that's different. That's more lights than I mean you're meant to experience the lights as opposed to the sound. And and Emerson Lake and Palmer factored right. prominently in those shows. Right, you see how I brought it full circle. I see that, and now we're and now the stage is is it's lowering, lowering. All right, okay then. Hey, <laughs> anyone else have final thoughts? Or that's it. No, okay. I'm done. Very good. And well, I don't know about you, but this episode makes me want to gaze longingly at ads for Macintosh amplifiers that I couldn't possibly afford. But in any case, as always, we'd like to thank our music director, the artist still known as Eris Dessel, for our theme music. Look for his performances in the Chicago area and beyond, and why not follow him on Instagram at 54BPM.
We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Edison Phonograph Company, a subsidiary of Yoyodyne Propulsion Systems. Turn to Edison for all of your wax cylinder needs. Okay, well, to get in touch, leave us a comment right here, or hit the little heart-shaped button. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at thisancient, that's one word, and on Facebook. Or contact us via email at thisweekintheancientneareast, which, as you know, is all one word, at gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.